Welcome everybody. And I want to share a very short text. I'll, I'll give you the chapter and you can see that the whole chapter follows. And, um, the verse that I'm looking at though is Matthew 13 and verse 46 or 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. That, that text has been on my heart for a few weeks now. And um, I, I, what, what it is that reaches out and grabs me is that it says, the kingdom of heaven is like... He doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is, but he is saying it is like. It's a thumbnail sketch. It is um, just a, sort of a, a quickie to say, do, do you see this? Well, the kingdom of heaven is like that. And when I read the kingdom of heaven is like that, then I compare it to so many similar ideas that float around the church these days. The kingdom of heaven is like. Well, what is the kingdom of heaven like? Um, and I'm not going to have you answer me because we could be here for the next week. But um, the kingdom of heaven is like. What is it like? A and what I have found, and in no way... Um, marking who said it, but for many people, I would say this is number one. The kingdom of heaven is like a very nice place after death. And that's where it begins and ends. The whole thing is looked upon as a synonym for heaven. You do know that most times people use the word heaven today. I don't know where you get it. It's not in the Bible. Um, the Bible hardly would ever speak of going to heaven. What, what the people talk about is this. To them, the kingdom of heaven, well, that must be after death. And, and therefore, when they speak of heaven, they are actually saying that heaven is heaven. And, and when I tell people, but that's not in the Bible, heaven as such is not in the Bible, they come to these verses and say the kingdom of heaven and that must mean what is used to describe after death, the eternal state. Uh, the kingdom of heaven, it's invisible and it's up somewhere. It's, it's the fairyland in the sky. It's the Disneyland after we die. Um, okay. Um, and, and right in the same line as that, for many people, the kingdom of heaven describes the second coming. And when they say second coming, they mean the first one missed it. And um, actually, I read it, and I won't tell you where I read it, but it was one of our evangelical leaders who said, well, we know Messiah came, and then he left. And he'll come back and really get the job done next time. Um, so that they look upon the first coming, and well, Jesus was rejected, and he left. And when you say left with that tone to it, it means he's gone. There's nothing, no connection right now. He's not here. 
and, and therefore everything that we thought he was going to do, he didn't do. But second time around, in a beautiful thousand-year reign, he's going to get it done. Uh, okay, that's the kingdom of heaven to many people. Um, and for others, it's present, but it's sort of in winning souls. That's the big expression uh, taken from somewhere in Daniel where it says, he who wins soul is wise. Uh, and they say, well, the whole thing divulges around winning souls. And what that means in practical terms is a sort of a pyramid scheme that you 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 win so many members and and Jesus is the upline and um, he's the diamond and anyway um, our whole idea of the kingdom of God is getting people to sign up for Jesus, pay a vote for Jesus, and, and others go a bit further and say, well, it, it is that, but it's also discipleship. And so their idea of the kingdom of God is a lot of Bible reading and church going and attendance and that big word for them is accountability. In the kingdom of God, you've got all the people in charge and you're underneath. And, well, that's enough. But the fact is the kingdom of God. And having given that quick synopsis of what so many people believe these days, um, what is the kingdom of God? What is it? Um, and I'm getting just by re saying what I've just said and then reading this, I get the idea that the image that Jesus has, he gives us just this thumbnail sketch, this idea thrown out, just an idea. The kingdom of God is something like this, that Jesus had a very, very different idea about the kingdom of God to any of the above. Now, if I'm off concerning the kingdom of God, then my entire Christian life is off. If you take any of those things very seriously and quickly, if the whole thing is after death, well then, I don't know what I'm doing here, and Christianity is as boring as I really thought it was. Um, if it is that I've just got to sign people up for Jesus, then... Is that it? Is it some great big Amway program? And I'm, I've got my diamond and ruby because I did so jolly good. Um, well, is that it? Do you realize what this doing to me in getting up on Monday morning and living life? What was it doing to me if I believed that? What, what, what is it um, if, if the whole Christian life is to do with Bible study and prayer, then I become a student. And the whole of Christianity devolves into studying the Scripture. And so I could keep going. But you see, what I believe of the kingdom of God determines how I live my Christian life. And it determines all of my hopes and projecting into the future. So... Right for start, Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is here and now. And he was saying that back in Matthew 13. Notice the kingdom of heaven is like. And so right there he was telling them the kingdom of God is present. And prior to this, in the earlier chapters of Matthew, he is saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that word 
would be describing a California surfing wave that, that you catch on a, a, a photograph. And here it is just about to hit the sand. And you now that, as you see it, they're hovering above the sand before it hits. That is what the Greek word at hand means. It means here and here. And well, Jesus now says it is. And later on, he's going to say the kingdom of God is either among you or in you, uh, always present. So all this idea that it's future, all the ideas that it's after you've done something or got somewhere, forget it. Jesus has said, right as we are now speaking, in this throbbing, pulsating moment, the kingdom of heaven is. It is. So look at it. He said that the kingdom of heaven is like, like, it's not altogether, there's a lot more to say, but it, it's like a person who is a pearl merchant who is driven to keep on seeking until this pearl of great price, of tremendous value, whichever way you want to put it, he finds it, and having found it, sells everything he has that he might possess it that where he is, it will be. So, what does all that mean? I wish it was all that. It's only a jolly sentence. What, what do you do with that? The kingdom of heaven is like a pearl, a seeking person, just for starters. Jesus is speaking of himself. He is the only seeker in the story. And I say that because I was raised to believe that Jesus was the pearl of great price and we've got to seek him. Well, that makes him a hard-to-get person. It means I don't know where he is and I've got to seek him and seek him and seek him in all the possible ways you can think and finally lay hold upon it. And then you've got to count the cost and sell all that you have to get him. That doesn't sound like the rest of the New Testament. That doesn't sound like the gospel. The gospel is the news of he who is present to us before we even know he's looking for us. And he who gives himself to us. And it's all grace, which is the gift of God, not selling everything you've got to get it. And so I am looking here at the seeker, and he we are not seeking him. That's not in this story, nor is it in the rest of the New Testament. And also, I, I am so dumb on this, I don't even know he's looking for me, so I can't cooperate with him in his seeking. So that's very important to define who the seeker is here, because we have to understand that the kingdom of God is not about my fragile, and I underscore that, fragile commitment they tell me, I've got to give myself. I've got to commit myself. Well, good luck. Um, it, by, by Tuesday, you'll have forgotten you did it. And, and that's, yeah, that, that's why I, you know, I never ask anybody to commit themselves. I know it's not decisions. If the whole thing hangs on our decision and our commitment, it's up and down, up and down. Did I do it right? Did I do it enough? Did I say it right? And all the rest of it. It's not. Nor is it about our desire. Because there are sometimes, I mean, a flame of passionate desire to be the greatest Christian on the planet. And then my chemistry goes down and I've forgotten about it. 
um, it's not about our desire. It isn't, let's be real. Nor is it about my faith. My faith, again, is up and down and all over the place. Um, faith that originates in us may be defined as some sort of natural psychic faith, but it's essentially faith in faith. The, the Bible speaks of another faith, a greater faith. It speaks of it in the epistles as the one faith, the only faith that is, is the gospel. Um, it's speaking of his faith, um, you say. Well, when Jesus spoke about this prior in other parables, but all you begin to see a pattern where the shepherd is seeking the sheep. The sheep has no faith to get home. Has no, I mean, it would be ridiculous to even talk about it. But the sheep does go home in the faith of the shepherd. Uh, and when the shepherd picks up the sheep, carries it, he goes with strong faith. And the only commitment that the sheep has is to lay on his shoulder and let the shepherd's faith carry him home. The life I now live, it says in Galatians 3.20, the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. And so it's not dependent on my, those things, my, my fragile commitment, my desire in the present, my promise to change my life, my promise I, I believe, all of that leads to the religious anxiety of have I done enough? Am I enough? Am I? You know all of that. But the kingdom of God is in the strong desire of the Holy Trinity. The before even creation, Jesus, the Christ, is designated to come and bring to us the desire of the Holy Trinity. It's his. Um, and he is the one that intentionally seeks us through the darkness, uh, messed upness of our lives. And of course, the flesh, if I could speak of religious flesh, my, my, my religion that looks to me to initiate all of this, uh, finds that very um, upsetting because religious flesh desires to be honored for religious attainment. I want you to honor me. See, I, I'm going to be 83. What kind of a glorious man am I? But I have trusted Jesus all these decades. You should honor me. And that daft stuff. The, the fact is, religious flesh is dead before it starts. Um, we, we are where we are today, every one of us, because we're carried in the strength of him who started this. He is the seeker. And the seeker who's speaking these words, who is sitting there saying the kingdom of heaven is like, he is God incarnate. He is himself God who, if I could put it this way, the journey of God to find us, is, is already to such an extent that God actually assumed our humanity, became absolutely one of us inside our darkness, that he might find us. And having found us, carry us in himself to our before-time destiny. Um, and, and understand, Jesus didn't just become a human being. 
It, it isn't that Jesus just became, you know, little Jesus on the block. He did. He did. He was an individual. But he comes taking to himself all humanity. We were talking about it just before the service, um, and it, referencing a message I gave back in the 1960s to a group of drug addicts in Brooklyn, New York, when they, they were wrestling, how could one man equal the whole human race? And, well, he wasn't a man in that sense. He took to himself humanity. He took us. He took our humanness. How could he do that? Because he's our inventor. He's the one who created us. And the creator, it says, in him all things consist. Everything holds together. And he, therefore, entered into his own creation he became one of us, but that one of us equaled the whole creation. He embraced us. It's, it's the incarnation. God on a journey to seek us. God on the journey into our humanity. And we in all of this are called the pearl. A pearl, I believe that encompasses all of us. It wasn't just one of us. But that's a strange thing. If it encompasses all of us, it does encompass each one of us. And so it is speaking of the human race. So I'm not saying you are the pearl of great price. You I'm not sure about. But this, this <laughs> as much religion does. No, this encompasses the human race. We are the pearl of great price. But seeing as you and I are part of that human race, we too can say we are the pearl of great price. Now, have you ever thought about this? Of all the precious stones on the planet, when Jesus told this story, he chose a pearl. Now, he's the storyteller. He could have chosen any precious stone that he wanted. And he chose a pearl. Now, in those days, a pearl has the status of a diamond today. Um pearls today I th well, it depends who you are I suppose but they take a step down from a diamond but in Bible days it was the pearl the pearl the pearl a and if you wanted to have the most expensive and the most looked at and adored it was the pearl but I Jesus chose that there's many things about a pearl that fascinating do you realize the pearl is the only precious stone that is presented to us completely ready-made when it's produced? Um, a diamond isn't. A diamond has to be cut and polished. Every precious stone has to be polished until it brings out. But a pearl, it just, there it is. It's ready to go. It's, it's, it's already shaped perfectly and, and the luster of the pearl is to perfection. It is ready to go. It's the only one. Um, and it's formed in the darkness inside the oyster. I think most people would know that. The pearl is the only pearl you don't dig up or, or pull out of the rock. It's, it comes out of a living creature, out of the oyster. And it's hidden there under the top shell of the oyster inside 
the, the sea creature uh, until you break it open and the oyster dies and there you have the pearl. It, it's, it's very different, as if it's waiting there, completely ready to go, but it's hidden in the darkness, it's hidden under the shell, awaiting somebody who will get into that darkness and, and pull it out. And if if nothing else, if nothing else, this this is I think is in Isaiah forty something. It references that the the father is saying to Jesus, who in Isaiah is described as his servant, and the father says, "I will give to you the treasures of darkness, and we are the." But you see, how can I put this? How can I say what I'm trying to say? That. We were created in the image of God. That is, we were created. We, we, we're wired. We're already fully made and ready. The human being is, is fashioned from the very beginning to be the radiant uh, outgiving of the presence of God. We, we were created to, to be the reflectors that see me, you see him. Um, we're, we're, we're created to be the responders to the initiator. Uh, and when Satan plunged us into darkness, that doesn't change. Satan is only a fallen angel. He is not a creator. All he can do is screw up what God has done. He has no power to make anything new. Therefore, I find this treasure... But it's hidden in the darkness, and the darkness is in the mind uh, of the human. And, and, and therefore, the, the mess up here is of vast proportions. But still, when Jesus looked at people, he saw pearls. Um, he saw, you know, we've talked about it in past weeks. He looks into the tree to Zacchaeus. He looked across the courtyard to Matthew. And, these are the people no one would touch and no one saw any worth in. And, and he spoke to something I don't see. He spoke to something that he saw since before time, that here is one ready-made, but in the dark. And of course, I've said the beauty of the pearl. The beauty of the pearl is, um, and the word used by jewelers is luster. It's different to others. The, the pearl, its beauty is in the, the radiance, in the shining of its reflected light. Again, as I say, in the image of God, we reflect the very being of God and the oyster. The, the pearl is the same word would be used, luster. Um, if ever you get in, into a place um, outside of the United States where you can see the sky... You probably see them in Alaska. Um, and then you'll understand what the Milky Way is. You've never seen the Milky Way. It's, it's as if it's just above the treetops and it's shining. The whole light of the sun only now shining off of the planets and the stars. and It's luster. And that is a pearl. We, we put it this way, we have been made, we are wired to have fellowship with the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Monkeys aren't, dogs aren't, grasshoppers aren't. We are fashioned. Every part of our mortal being is fashioned for an eternal purpose. And, and I say, the darkness and the lie 
has taken us where we were never intended to go. But God still sees the pearl, and that's how he addresses us. And so he comes seeking. It's a passion, an inner drive. Anybody that goes traveling the world and he's already got a bunch of pearls, but he is passionately focused upon finding the best and the greatest. That That is an inner drive. Remember when we were speaking of Zacchaeus, it says, I must come to your house to eat. And that word must usually in scripture is used to describe a divine imperative. It's There's only one name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Same word. It, 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 there's no debate here. There's, it, it's a must. And, and the seeker here is driven. His father sends him. And Jesus, God from God, joins with his father's sent that he now must. And he carries the design and the desire of the Holy Trinity into our darkness. He must. Love must find us. That's interesting. Find. Well, who would think of using that word with God? God having to find? Seriously, think about that. Because it's a word which describes discovery. It, it means I, I, I come upon something. And even as in this case I know it's there, but I go down this alleyway and I go through this. I'm looking, I'm searching. I go through the antique shops looking, looking, looking. Show me everything you've got. I'm looking for something. And he uses it to describe the seeker who is God incarnate. That's fascinating to me. Fascinating. That God comes looking, which means a humility that baffles the imagination. That this is so real he joins us in our darkness journey and said, I'll put my feet where your feet go. I'll come into the ravines that you go to and I will come where you are. And of course, again, this is echoed in the woman who cleans out the whole house to find the coin. That, that it isn't, you know, people think of God as the ultimate magician. That, you know, abracadabra and it's done stands on the edge of our darkness wouldn't get his holy feet dirty by coming in and he just waves his wand and you know but this this shows a love that i don't know if i'm conveying what i'm feeling that that god actually searches which means he goes down our dead end streets to find us that he goes into the mess we have made because we're under there somewhere. He goes into the wilderness and his feet match the poor prince of the sheep that's got lost. He joins us in our lostness because when he found the sheep, he's as lost as the sheep is, except he knows where he is. But he has come where the sheep... That's amazing. That's the incarnation. Never think of Jesus as just floating through life. You know, he's not us. He's not, he, he just is God. Yes, he is God, but he is God who in unbelievable humility has actually joined us to the point where he's searching. And when he finds us, 
I was going to say he goes nuts. Uh, but that's almost the meaning. It says when he found the sheep, he rejoiced. This one sells everything he has. Um, th- this is bordering on crazy that he's found. Oh, do, do you understand what I'm trying to say here? He's found this most precious. He's found it. And he's saying this. this uh, and of course, um, th- this is Jesus who has joined his own creation in order to find us where we've lost ourselves. Amazing. And we join this story when the journey's already begun. Jesus said that the pearl merchant was searching. So we, we join where, where he, he, he doesn't have the pearl. He's seeking. He's seeking. Can you imagine a time when God doesn't have what he wants, but he's seeking? It's incarnation. He goes into unknown territory. That's what seeking is. You're going where you haven't been before, haven't thought of going before. It's unknown territory. And he's going there to seek precious pearls and upon finding what he's looking for to bring it from where it is to where he is, that it become his. And so, he is, I mean, let's get personal. My journey is as unique as my name. And yet, God in Christ joined me in my journey, so there's not a place I have gone, not a step I've taken, not a word I've said, but that he has been there, in there, Searching me out, love comes looking. And all the barriers we set up, he gets around them. All the holes we dug to hide, and he taps us on the shoulder and says, I'm here. You know, he's, think about it. And he has no time factor. It's always until. The shepherd is until. The woman is until she finds it. And this, he's, he's not going home until he's found it. It's quite a... And of course, when he comes upon the stone, there, there's an examination. has to be. Is, is, this, is this the stone I'm looking for? You know. He examines it and determines it's worth the cost. And of course, that is what scandalizes the religious... I'm really upsetting somebody right now when I say that you are worth Jesus dying for. You're worth it. See, we're not. We're raised to say we're worth less, that we're no good, and we we, we you know debase ourselves. But the whole point: if a man is searching for pearls, he's no fool. He doesn't sell all that he has for a fake pearl. He gives himself because he knows this is the pearl I'm looking for. You have been examined and found to be worthy. You were worth saving. You are the real McCoy that came out of the hand of the Holy Trinity in creation. And though you have been so broken and so darkened and twisted and lied and lost 
by Satan, you are worth saving because you are what he was looking for. I say it again, this is what scandalized. This, if you want to look at a natural level, this is what God Jesus crucified because he sat down with the unspeakable, the untouchables. You know, we've said enough about tax collectors, you, you know what I mean. But he sat down with the prostitutes, he sat down with the people who had sinned in the most social fashion so that they had cut themselves off from anybody decent. Jesus sat down and said, these are the ones I've come, and he used the word, I've come to seek and to save. This, this one, this is, this is it. This is the, the worthy one. And it leaves us speechless, if you want to think about it, let alone the people of that day. He is saying that you are worth the life of God given for you. You are worth it. I mean, just say it again. Say it in your mind that he sold all that he had in order to get this one pearl. It's a massive statement. That means he, it cost all that he had, but all that he had bound up all that he was. And he had to in order to secure the pearl. That was the price on it. And his desire for the pearl was bigger than the cost to obtain it. This is the incarnation. God gave all that he was, all that he had, and you could, I suppose, throw in the whole of creation there, for he'd already looked at creation and said it was good. Um, but when it came to us, God in Christ gave himself. And in giving himself, gave everything he had in order to have us. Which means if I get rid of all that I have and all my own hopes and dreams wrapped up in all that I had in order to get one pearl, then I would have to say my entire life now has been united to that pearl. That pearl is my life. I, I've got rid of everything else. Just think about it. Now, there, there's that other thing that's strange about a pearl. It's the only precious stone that actually blood is shed to get it. Every, every pearl is stained in blood. Now, I'm, I'm pushing this a bit from one angle, but the other, who is saying this? Jesus is saying it. And he's telling us, but it, he's thinking and knowing more than he can tell us. Even at the end right at the very end, just before he goes to suffer and die, he said to those closest to him, I have many things to tell you, but you, you wouldn't get it now. And um, how much more? This was at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And so when he says things here, I'm hearing where he's coming from 
which is a lot bigger than the story. When he says he went and sold all that he had in order to lay hold upon the pearl. Where's Jesus' mind when he said that? As we read it, it's simply cash across the counter. But when he was saying it about himself, I'm, I'm brought back to that pearl. And I know I, I said, you know, that from before foundation of the world, we were made pearls. We were. And that's interesting because when we were, what shall I say, when we became a concrete idea in the mind of God before the foundation of the world, when, when God purposed he would create a creature that would become part of his family, in that same time, if you can call time before time, it says the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And therefore, though all of that is shrouded in some kind of mystery, but when he spoke of our inception into the triune family, he threw in that the crucifixion, the lamb slain, was from before the foundation of the world. As if I'm telling you of the cost before you even understand what it means. We came into being with the fingerprints of blood already on us, waiting for this to happen. The sufferings and death of Jesus was not a tragic, unforeseen accident. As some of those who say the kingdom of God is in the future believe. No, the sufferings, the blood, the crucifixion were the necessary completion of our creation. The pearl came into being through bloodshed. You, do, do you know what I mean? In the oyster, do you know how a pearl comes into being? In, in the oyster, a little bit of sand gets in through the shell and up against the soft body of the oyster, the sand begins to irritate, and there's blood. And and so the oyster sends something to give itself rest. And, well, that something forms, embraces the piece of sand, and it keeps on because it keeps on annoying the oyster, shedding the oyster's blood, until it's formed, that secretion that it sends becomes the pearl. And when you open up the oyster, there's the pearl already made. But it has caused through the bloodshed of the oyster. Have you ever, have you ever heard that before? I think you have. Well, what, what is he saying here? Jesus used that word must. Do you remember he said the Son of Man must suffer same word as we used before there's no debate about it this is the must the blood of god must be shed in order for this to take place in real history in order to bring us into the fellowship with the father that we might become who we really are the merchant bought the pearl that's the story but i'm asking could Jesus ever say that without knowing what it is his cost? Sold all that he had, 
you ever really thought about it? Have I ever really thought about it? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Massive statement. How come? Because in order to get us, in order to come where we are, in order for this merchant to find the pearl and then to pay for the pearl, he has to face everything that we believe would separate us from him. You ever thought about that? While we believe there's anything that can separate us from God, we'll hide behind it. In order to reach us, he had to get past everything that we believe could separate us from him, whether for good or bad, because we might think we're really hiding from him, or we might think that we're cut off from him, whichever way we look at it. But he's got to get behind that, and instead of it separating us, that must be the point where he defines his love for us. Do you understand that? Um, you see, love is not a word that bounces off your eardrum. To have delighted, to have relationship with, they are inside words. They are not, I say, they're not addressing my ear. They, they come from within love. That that's the entire being involved in love. If I desire and delight, that too comes from deep within. That that is a rudder that that guides the whole ship of my life. And therefore, he has got to come inside of me, and speak his words inside of me concerning God love and God desire and God delight and joy because otherwise it is the deadest religion that you could ever concoct to speak of such words that are outside he had to come inside well what's inside inside is darkness where I've already made up my mind I'm separated from God I've invented a God who doesn't love I've invented a God who couldn't care less who's remote untouchable and he's got to come inside and speak his love where all that finds its nest and origin. So, have you ever thought of, when he's doing that, what was he looking at? He was looking at you. And I have to say it as personal as that. It said for the joy that was set before him. He endured the suffering. He, he endured the shame of the cross. And he says, for the joy that was set before him, he was coming into all of that in order to lay hold upon you the pearl of great price. And that was a joy that enabled him to do what he did. Let me put it this way. We tortured, we the human race, wicked men, tortured and wounded him. And, and and the natural thought, even as we look back at it, the, the natural thought is to torture God? 
to arrange the murder of God? Well, at least you've got to draw the line somewhere. That must be unpardonable. And yet, in the middle of that, do you understand, while they are torturing him, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Or to put it in other ways, this cannot separate you from me. As you put in the nail, as you lash my back until you can see my bones and my organs, don't think you found what separates you from me. In fact, right here, as you are doing that, I'm going to put in the stake and say, I love you, and you are forgiven. Does that make sense? He's got to go there. He's got, he's got to go where we think we can hide from his love. I mean, anything that man or devil-inspired hate could do all the way to death itself. I hear this, I will enter death. I will join you there in the unspeakable, unknowable death. And there I will say, I love you. For even death cannot separate me from the love of God. So abandonment, betrayal, infinite loneliness they cannot separate whatever you've done Peter you've cursed me you spat in my face and Judas betrayed me you don't think that can separate you from my love instead right as you're doing it there I'll say I love you I've come where you are abuse and obviously every form of physical abuse every form of mental abuse emotional abuse but also have you ever realized that crucifixion one part of crucifixion was sexual abuse because all crucified persons were stripped naked and lifted up to the gawking mocking crowd and the soldiers chosen to do the job were perverted wicked sadists Jesus was sexually abused in that sense upon the cross. And he says, do you think that can separate from the love of God? I love you right here as you're sexually abusing me. I come where you are. He joined us. Joined us. He relinquished the right to fight back. He relinquished the right to defend himself. Because he said, I'll accept what you're doing. I will love you there. And in so doing, get inside of you. Inside your darkness. And announce there, love. And I will take the worst you can do to me and turn it for your salvation. Let, let the horror of sin go to its fullest potential. Everything that would hold you back has been lifted. You have permission, divine permission, to do your worst. And I won't stop you. And I'll take what you do and say, I love you there. And I will use what you've just done to be your salvation. 
Now the end he said, I have the keys of death and hell. What are the keys of death and hell? Love. Jesus went into death and whatever you want to call hell, he went there. And love turned the key and said, I own the joint. You know, He cancelled. He made it the arena for the full demonstration of his love. I love you there. That, that's why we can say to a person who, who you're an addict, pornography, drugs. I mean, well, he loves you there. Right there. He has come inside to tell us, inside us, at our worst, this is where I love you. But the question is, why would you do that? And I'm not going to just be a, you know, evangelist. Um, I, it's an honest question. Why? Why? Why would any merchant sell everything he has for one pearl? And when we take it to what Jesus was talking about, why? You, you have to or you miss the whole point of the gospel. You end up with some... You do. Why? I mean, the value he places on this thing is actually more than cash. Who, who, when you're a wealthy man, he had a bunch of pearls. He's a wealthy man. When he said he sold everything he had, we are talking money. Who is going to pay that? You've got a pearl now, but you've got nothing else. Because you had to pay for the pearl. Why? You see, as I said before, if he sold everything to get the pearl, then the pearl has become his entire life. He's got nothing else left. Why? Jesus the seeker owns the entire universe, but not as a distant wealth. It says, in him all things consist, and he upholds all things by the word of his power, and therefore he is wrapped up inside his universe. But he said, that's not enough. If I could ever dare to say God was not contented, I, I hesitate to say that, who, for God lives in a perfect peace, but, but I'll say it. He's not content with the entire universe. He's not content with just simply being God, content within himself, in the love of the Father and the Spirit. God must have us. You know, I've said it before. He refuses to be God without us. Incredible. And that's what's coming. Why? It's more than a business deal. It's more than monetary value. This man is exchanging his life for the pearl. He's not merely buying it so that in a few weeks he can resell it for twice the price. Why would a person buy something 
like this. Well, even a pearl at any price. I mean, why would you buy a pearl anyway? I mean, it doesn't make you a better person. It doesn't enhance your strength or your wisdom or your state of life. I mean, you just buy a pearl. Why, why, why would you buy a pearl? It's there's only one answer to that that it delights your heart. You you are going to buy something just because it gives you joy. It won't give you anything else. You just sit there looking at you. But it gives you joy. Your gaze meets the gaze of the pearl and you sit there all day looking at each other. Um Something like that. You know what I'm saying. The only reason you buy a pearl is because it delights you. It's not going to do anything else. It has cost you everything you have. It's not going to carry you to town. You know, it's, as I say, it's not going to make you a wise person. It's just going to delight you. You buy something for its own sake, its own beauty, just because it is. He is purchasing a gaze. I am going to gaze at this pearl and be content. I am going to look at this pearl and know what pure delight. I am, I'm going to live in its luster. And I'll call my friends in just to look at it with me and we'll rejoice together. God desires you because he would joy in you. I, I said that, and I'll say it, there was a Calvinist in the meeting and he burst out laughing, a sneering laugh. He said, that's stupid. God loving us. Yeah. Religion, it's stupid. Religion says, you've got to win souls. Then God will be pleased. You know, you've got to study your Bible. Then God will be pleased. God says, just let me look at you. I'm content. There's something. He desires us that he might have us to be with him. That means love. That that's the meaning of friendship. That's what fellowship is about. It's not that I love you because you are going to do something for me. It isn't that I want you as my friend because I want influence. You know the word, we've got words for that. Slime. I mean, do you want a friend who just wants to use you? Do you, do you want to have someone that says they love you because they're after your fortune? No, it stinks and yet we allow it in religion. That God can want us for ulterior motives. He desires us to have us on equal ground. That's something else that upsets people. 
But that's all Jesus ever did, is picking people up and says, look at me, I want to talk to you. Come down, Zacchaeus, look at me, I'm coming to your house. Equal ground. It's amazing. Face to face. This isn't just this. This takes me in one sentence to the heart of it. But it's all over the scripture. Back to Luke 15. The shepherd finds the sheep, and what does he do when he finds the sheep? He rejoices. He puts it on his shoulder, rejoicing. He goes back home and says to everybody, rejoice with me. Why? I found the animal. You know, I found my sheep. That's enough. That's enough reason. I found. The younger brother comes home to the father. And he offers himself to be a slave. Surely God will be impressed. And the man, the father, dismisses him, you know. Whether he just simply ignored him, told him to shut up. Whatever, in the scripture, there's no way. The father, he won't, he won't go there. He, instead, he says, you are my son. I delight in my son, not in the work of a slave. And the elder brother, who thought he had done so well, said, all these years I have slaved for you. The father's response essentially said, you missed it, because all that I have is yours. I am always with you. And you're talking about slaving for me? You know, there's... A neat, and it, 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 to me it fits here. Psalm 17, 8, it says, Keep me as the apple of your eye. And there's uh, many other scriptures that use that expression. The apple of his eye. What does that mean? The apple of his eye. And it is used enough to be significant. Do you know, in the Hebrew language, there, and in all the other places where that phrase is used, it doesn't say apple of his eye. That's the English translation. What it does say is, little man of the eye. Wow, yeah. And the Latin, which of course came later, but they called it the little doll of your eye. Doll. What would they mean? The apple of your eye, that's the pupil of your eye. They said when someone is gazing at you and you're close enough to them, you see yourself, the little man dancing in their pupil. The apple of your eye means I look at you and I see myself in your eye. I see that you're absorbed in looking at me. Yeah. Your image dances in the eyes of the person who won't take their eyes off you. That's the meaning of the word. And then universally the word came to mean one who is highly favored. Someone who is valued above and beyond others. Someone of vast importance, a dearest friend, a cherished friend, a treasure. Someone you watch over. Someone that 
you, know, you, you gaze, you've been caught in almost a hypnotic grasp. Apple of his eye. That's the gospel. Look, the gospel introduces us to the love of God. Do I have to say that? <laughs> God is love. So it's not even love of God, which would seemingly remove the love from him. No, this God is the love that he loves. God so loved the world that he gave. We love because he first loved us. The goal of the Christian life that you might know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. The Father himself loves you, he said. As we've said, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Okay, everybody's head is nodding. You realize there's no other religion on earth that says that. That's, that's the uniqueness of the gospel. Love. Just think about it. Love is not a cold, legal decision. It's a warm, it's a passionate matter of the heart. It delights in the beloved. And delighting in the beloved evokes love from the beloved. And you come upon this furnace of Love given, love received, love exchanged. And love can never exist in isolation. There's got to be at least two before we can use this term love, which I believe is how we understand love in the Holy Trinity. And so two giving themselves to each other is the definition of love. They unite in this, this mystery of two becoming one without losing themselves in the other. It, it is the you, you, union. It's this two are one without losing themselves. That, that's a relationship of face to face. No separation, no secrets, self-giving, all those words. And it's the love I meet in God who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, so it speaks of intimacy. It speaks of the heart. It speaks of mutual self-giving. It talks about embrace. It talks about a kiss. Supreme friendship. Fitting together like Lego pieces. These are all ways which we understand when we know the meaning of the word love. And in the Bible, the word knowing means that union. Never, never, never does knowing in the Bible mean knowing about. It means the knowing of union. Why are we so shocked when we say that we're the apple of his eye? Why are we so shocked when we realize the why behind the sufferings of Jesus is that he might look at us and delight in us. Surely that makes sense because we've used the word love. You see, the Western church has become a loveless cult. 
if the Western church were to truly define love and marriage, they would describe it as you standing at the altar with a book or a catalog. It would describe husbands or wives and, and you're trying to make a relationship with a book. That's as far as it goes. They know nothing about this mystery of real love existing between God and his people to the point where he simply delights in us because we're here. Because winning souls, signing up members, it sounds sensible if you're doing just that, signing up members. But don't, don't tell me love is involved. In fact, even in the moment of contract, I suppose you'd call it. Will you say this prayer after me and sign here? You think you've joined a club or something. And, and I, you know, how, how much of what people call the gospel is a response to the God of terror. We're terrified of his judgment. And, and it's that terror that keeps this fragile morality in place. I remember telling a drug addict once, God loves you beyond whether you do or don't do. And they became angry. And they said, don't tell me that. Because the only thing that keeps me from going back to drugs is I'm terrified that God would damn me in hell. There's no, no concept of love. Just... The joy of the Lord. Now, that's not something you have first. It's his joy, joy of the Lord. The same as the fruit of the Spirit. Spirit joys. And of course, the Zephaniah 3.19, no. He sings over you for joy. And he did it all in public. He was not ashamed it says in Hebrews, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. It's incredible. He sat down publicly with the lowest of the low, the least, the most disgusted and disgusting, and made it plain to everybody he called them his own. And of course, that's very strange. And I have to go there one more time because I know where we've been raised. And there's this poisonous gas that's in the air when you talk about the gospel. That Again, I read this just the other day because I was looking at what, what do some of our brothers in the leadership of the evangelical church, what are they saying about this? And this is a quote when it, when it comes to the word joy of the Lord and rejoice with me. This is a quote. That he, he said this is very difficult for us to understand because he said we know that God hates us. God hates our sin and we're all, God hates us. And even when we come to Christ, he lives in disappointment of us. We live with a God who's always frowning at us. He said this is very difficult to understand. But yes, that's true. It's true. It's strange to our ears. That he looks at me in Christ and says, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. 
we've been taught that our value is in groveling and demeaning ourselves. um, The the song, you know, Amazing Grace Saved a Wretch Like Me, it's a beautiful song, certainly if you know the background. But we're not undeserving wretched. That's not the meaning of grace. Grace simply means a gift that has been bestowed upon us that you're unable to pay for. That's all. doesn't mean you're a wretch. doesn't mean that God despises you, God hates you. Grace is a gift bestowed. And in this case, a gift you're unable to pay for. And if it's a gift from the Creator, then it's illegal to even attempt to pay for it. If I gave you a gift and you insisted on paying for it, then you are refusing to acknowledge the gift and you're refusing the relationship that gave the gift. You're insisting upon a contract of purchase. Yeah. Well, so what is the kingdom of heaven like? Oh. It is a love that is bestowed upon us that declares us to be of the highest value, pursued by God the Son himself, who came into our darkness and walked the streets of our journey and found us. And through the Holy Spirit, we are one with him, we know him, we're known of him. And now we have the luster, we reflect his love to the world. So the kingdom of God is righteousness, is peace, it is joy in the Holy Spirit. The coming of the Holy Spirit is the grand finale of the finished work of Jesus. When Spirit comes into me and everything we've talked about now is happening inside me. And incidentally, if somebody's upset that I suggested the kingdom of God has nothing to do with the afterlife or well you understand that you are the beloved of the father you'll never think about the afterlife again it's simply be with a shrug of the shoulders to be with Christ which is far better and For the first time, of course, you'll wake up to realize a very relevant gospel because it's all here and now. And as to winning souls, well, of course, you'll impact everybody on the street to the point where they will come to you asking a reason for the hope that is within you. Because you're not selling a formula. You're sharing a love that is beyond words. I told a story, so if you've heard this before, forgive me, but this story is as real to me today as when I was first told it. And sometimes I have a hard job telling it. Um, I kind of lose it. It was in I was in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil at a pastor's conference And after the conference, this young Portuguese guy who's in his early 20s 
came. He couldn't speak English, and so it was given to me through an interpreter. And so I'm giving you that interpretation. I was there, but I'm, I'm still giving you my version of the story. He was a young pastor, very young, and believed that he had a call from God to go to the Amazon because the Amazon is part of Brazil, so it would be home missions. And you know the Amazon is full of tribes, some of them very dangerous tribes. And he felt this, he'd got to go. The church in Rio was delighted with a young man willing to go to this these tribes of the Amazon, <clears throat> promised him support and everything. And so he with his new wife, just got married, they went up in the far north to the Amazon jungle. And, um, well, within a few months, the church in Rio had totally forgotten he existed. There was no more support, or if it was, it came in dribs and drabs and dribbles. But also, he was having a difficulty with the language because each tribe had its own language, and the the natives didn't want to hear him and couldn't understand his gospel. And his wife was pregnant now. And so, new baby, tribes are not listening, no support, running out of food, running out of everything. The time the baby was born, everything was as bleak as could be. And after a trip through the tribes and with no result except closed doors, he came back to his wife and he said, Pack, we are out of here. We're going back to Rio. And he said, I'm done. I'm finished with God. I'm finished with his ministry. I'm out of here. And he said, as you pack, I've got I've to close this. I need closure with God to say I'm finished with him. I don't want to hear from him again. And if this is what he calls love, he can keep it. And he went to a cabin on the edge of the jungle and he screamed at God for better part of a day. And he said he cursed at God. He told God everything he could dredge up until he was exhausted and he said he lay on the floor just absolutely exhausted having told God what he thought of him. And as he lay there, he said that the hut was filled with the presence of God. And he said he heard a voice within him. And it said, I am so sorry that your work for me has interrupted our friendship. Because all I've only ever wanted is your friendship. That you and I be together. And I would ask you to leave your work for me so we can reconnect our friendship. And he said that knocked him sideways. He'd never, ever thought of that. It was as if he'd rediscovered the gospel, you know. And he went back to his wife. He said, unpack. We're staying. He said, I've got a new 
I've got to work this out. This new. And he went back to the tribes, only now with a totally different approach to the gospel. And they listened. And suddenly money began to come in from not only Rio, but all over Brazil. And when he came to my meeting in Rio, he was established as a, he now has a church among the tribes. But as he, through his interpreter, was telling me that the tears were flowing, he said, because I, I never knew this was the gospel. And he said, now I have a gospel. And he said, now I'm living in the friendship of God. And P.S., I work for him. But it's, you know, the whole thing. I've never forgotten that. Never forgotten that. And I guess that is what I'm trying to say. You're a pearl of great price for God to gaze upon in friendship and delight. Everything else is a P.S. Father, we thank you simply because this is the gospel. And we thank you for your love and your delight in us that comes to us in the face of Jesus Christ. Open our eyes to see that. Open our ears to hear your voice of love. And let our lives be the luster of the reflection of that relationship. But to see us is to see your love. Let your will be done in our lives this day as it is in your heart. That the kingdom of heaven may be seen in us. Thank you. Amen.